Well, Pastor Mike has been taking us through the book of Ephesians, and I don't know about you, but I am really enjoying this series, as I did the Peter series, as I did the Philippian series. He is such a marvelous teacher, and we are so blessed to have him as our church leader and teacher and senior pastor. Uh, I thought what I would rather do is let him continue when he is well again in Ephesians rather than try to uh, continue in Ephesians. But I do want to talk about the church of Ephesus today. So it'll tie in a little bit with that. But uh, my theme today is first love, first love. Now, I want to share with you today is November 3rd. November 2nd in our family is a big day. Laura and I celebrated our 16th anniversary That's wedding together for 16 years. That's a record in my family. Um, no, that's, shouldn't have said that. So we, we had a night, we dressed up like adults and we went out and had a, had a meal like adults do rather than eat soup at home or something like that. But I want you all to now close your eyes a little bit, if not physically, at least metaphorically. And I want you to go back to your first romantic love. Joe, you may have to go back further than some of us. <laughs> For me, it was in the sixth grade, and her name was Carol. And probably it's a blessing to her that I don't remember her last name. Her name was Carol, and she was, we were just so much in love. We held hands on the school playground. We shared sandwiches and uh, walked hand in hand through the hallways. In those days, you could do that. Uh, and my mother was a participant, too. She took me to uh, buy a ring for her, a friendship ring. And in those days, you gave a girl a friendship ring, and she put it around a silver. Max, you're, you're nodding. Yes, you remember. <laughs> she put it around her neck, and you and we went steady. We went steady. And then I was crushed. She informed me she had found somebody else, and anyway, that's okay. I went back and started playing baseball again and, you know, forgot about it a little bit, but her brother was on our team, and I remember one day I went to pick him up at his house, and I'd never been there before, and he said, would you like to come in and see Carol's room? She's not here, and I said, sure, I'd love to see that. <laughs> this is sixth grade, right? For some of us, it took a little longer than that. I walked into that room. And there was a little bowl that had about six or seven rings in it. <laughs> and mine was one of them. So I was, uh, I was crushed. But uh, that's not the first love we're talking about today. I want to tell you my true first love is up on the screen now. 31 years ago, I came to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus and accepted him into my life as Lord and Savior, and came up out of that water, and boom, my life uh, has, has changed dramatically ever since. And I've been on fire for Jesus. I love Him. I serve Him. I worship Him. Uh, he's my first love. Okay, and that was 31 years ago. If you do a little bit of math, that was in the early, my early 40s. So I had uh, a run of about 25 years of 
we'll, we'll just be nice and call it bad behavior. It actually was abject rebellion against God because I was in love with God when I was a young man, uh, actually a, a young boy. I was in love with God. I was raised in a church that believed in the Bible, that we read the Bible every day. It was part of our lesson plan, all right? We also read a commentary called Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures. And so the Jesus that we worshipped was the perfect man. He was not God, all right? And sin, we were taught as young boys and, and girls, sin was erroneous thinking, and sickness is erroneous thinking. And there's no such thing as evil. There's no such thing as the devil, as Satan. So think about that for a moment. If there's no such thing as sin, and Jesus is a perfect man, who needs a Savior? Right? Who needs a Savior? Well, I was busted in college and came to the truth with some Christian guys in my fraternity. They were not very nice. And they beat me over the head with the Bible and just told me I was in a cult. And, you know, you're going to burn if you don't turn. One of those kinds of deals. So I sat there and said, you know what? I'm just going to dump God altogether. And I did that for 25 years. But he patiently wooed me back to the saving grace in my, in my early 40s. And I will be eternally grateful uh, for that. Uh, our scripture this morning... Uh, core scripture, if you want to take out your Bibles and turn to it, is Revelation 2. And we're going to study Revelation 2, 2 through 7. And rather than read the entire seven verses, I'm going to concentrate first of all on the first two, 2 and 3. And to set the stage a little bit, this is the book of Revelation. I always like when I present the words of Jesus, I like to present the red letters. It just does something to me to know that uh, the author of this, you know, is speaking to us directly, is the way I view it. And, and so you see the red letters up here. And Jesus, in Revelation, is, is telling us, uh, through John, the apostle, and he's talking about the church in Ephesus. Now, as he talks about the church in Ephesus, I don't want you to think of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. I want you to think of your own heart. So let's look at Ephesus in our own heart. And let's look as if God is searching your heart today. And he's going to use these words to search your heart. And he says, and I'll just personalize it. Jim, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. That's me. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my sake and have not become weary. And thus far, that's been true for me. Wow. But then out comes the dagger in the heart. And that is, nevertheless, Jim, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Wow. I don't know about you, but I've been meditating on this specific verse for the last six months. Because as I will unravel to you, I think that that's what has happened to me this last six months. And I'm going to bring that story to you and have you search your own heart or have Jesus search your own heart and see if that's true for you as well. 
I'm going to now move to a secular book called With by a gentleman by the name of Sky Jethani. And he said that in the Western world, particularly in the United States and Europe, we tend to relate to God four different ways. Life under God, life over God, life from God, and life for God. Let's explore those. Yes, I'm a last-minute speaker here, and so my graphics are a little bit, left to be a little bit desired. <laughs> Some of you have been to my house, particularly the ladies who go to Laura's uh, hosting of the Women's Fellowship Bible Study. Um, know that I do some artwork and so but I don't I don't know how to draw and so as I try to illustrate life under God the triangle of course represents God Father Son and Holy Spirit is a triangle and then that's me under (laughs) underneath that or maybe it's you I don't know but uh, life under God it looks a little oppressive doesn't it it looks a little Yikes, I don't know if I want to be this guy with a life under, under God. All right. So what does life under God look like? It looks like we're living under divine rules or laws uh, in, 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 that are expressed in our core book, the living word of God. Uh, but we look upon them as rules and laws, and, and, and we do that to avoid calamity. We don't do that overtly to avoid calamity, but we think that if we obey all of these laws, our life is likely to be blessed, or the trials we experience are not going to be like the trials that some of you are experiencing right now. Okay? We offer sacrifices and gifts to God, When it comes to tithes and offerings, sometimes these are like obligations. These are like, okay, I'm doing this because God will bless me or he won't hate me. Or We're offering sacrifices to please God. We live according to God's righteous expectations and hope that he will bless us and answer our prayers. Now, it may not be that harsh, but there's enough subtlety in there to where I think Some of us in this room may be able to identify. And the real dagger here is that the motive then is to exert control over God. As much as we know that that's impossible, we think that we can influence God and bless our families by doing and exhibiting this kind of behavior. So life under God, it's it's oppressive. We have a term for it in the church. We call it legalistic. I remember going to Pastor Warren's church, Rick Warren's church. One of the things he would say over and over again, legalism will kill a church faster than anything. Faster than anything. All right. Taking the Word of God out of context and using it as a weapon against somebody or as a proof point you know, with the wrong motive is, uh, is, is not appropriate. Not appropriate. It, it tends to be a religion rather than a relationship. So I want to affirm once again to you, God is more interested in a relationship with you than your religion. We identify as Christians, most of us in this room, but he wants a relationship with you, a personal relationship. The ancient Jews uh, referred to all of these laws as a yoke. And in Matthew 11, Jesus tells His disciples, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. 
take my yoke on you. Now for years, I mean until six months ago, literally, until six months ago, I always viewed this, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest, take my yoke on you as oppressive. I don't like that verse. I'm not an animal, Jesus. You can't just stick a yoke on me. That's what I was really saying deep inside my heart. But you know what happened to me? The Lord came to me, and and the way the Lord comes to me is very subtly. I don't really get visions and dreams and writing on the wall like Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Very subtly. Jesus' yoke is different. He's telling us his yoke is different, isn't he? He said the yoke is like it's, it's got two holes in it, all right? One for you to pull this load and the other for me. Jesus is the other one in the yoke. Now think about that for a moment. If you go through life with Jesus and his yoke and he's in the other yoke, that's what he's inviting us to. That's what he's inviting us to. Not this oppressive, I'm going to stick your neck in this thing, and you're going to plow the field till you die. You know, that's not. That's life under God. Life over God, okay, is a ne- another way that we sometimes uh, view it. This guy looks a little happier because it was a second drawing that I did. And uh, <laughs> plus, I have a little bit of pride, and so it seems like climbing to the top and, you know, being above God is... Uh, a little subtle, but, you know, that's exactly what Satan did. He climbed above God and he said, you know, I want to be you. I want to be better than you. So this approach believes that God created everything, including the natural and physical laws. And then he stepped away and allows this whole experiment to work. And that's called deism, actually. It's called deism, uh, if you want to give a phrase to it. Uh, but pure deists, people that, that, that believe that God created everything and then just stepped away, why else could you explain all of this stuff that goes on in our lives? They pray for godly intervention, all right? But they don't really rely on God for intervention. If they're sick, they go to the doctors, okay? If their marriage is suffering, they go to a marriage counselor. Uh, so they find the best doctors, the best me- medicines, the best counselors, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. God anoints doctors and does in our church, all right? Doctor anoints counselors and does in our church. But to exclude God from the equation and just go to these professionals without the power of the Holy Spirit being involved in the overall process is what life over God people do. They have God, but they put him off to the side, all right? Life over God. Uh, Even in the church, um, and Pastor Mike has been talking about this, some modern churches leave very little room for God. Uh, Church attendance can often be based upon the worship. You go to some of these very large churches, the musicians actually have, you know, professional gigs, and they just show up on Sunday and You know, they have record deals and they have all kinds of stuff. And oftentimes they're flogging their records. And so people will go for the show. 
They'll go for the show, the worship. Sometimes the pastor is so anointed that they'll just go for the sermons. Whoa. Our pastor is very anointed. Some of us are here because of his sermons. I'm not ashamed of that, and I don't want you to be ashamed of that either. But if that's the only reason that you are coming to this church, you're missing the concept of a relationship with God. Our relationship is not with Pastor Mike. Our relationship is not with the worship team. Our relationship is with the Lord Jesus who orchestrates all of this. Amen? The venue. We certainly don't come here because of the venue. Okay, there's still the remnants of the haunted house up here on the wall. So, you know, I, I said for the last couple of weeks, welcome to uh, the house of God, not the haunted house. That's on a different time frame. Uh, the programs. We, we have a lot of service and we have a lot of love in our church. And uh, so a lot of stuff happens on a volunteer basis. And um, our children's program was resurrected uh, a little over a year ago, as I recall. And, you know, thank God that we have that so that young mothers and fathers can bring their children. Uh, and those of us that are a little older can bring their middle-aged children. So, so fortunately, we have some programs, but our programs are relatively limited. We don't have, you know, a mission going to Nigeria next month. We just don't have one of those things. All right, now we support missionaries out in the field. I don't know if you know that or not, but we do support, like Hearts Out of Africa, we support that, that mission group. And then some people come for the, for the people. Our church has been the most loving, and I know Laura would attest to this, the most loving church that we have ever been to. And Laura's young, but I'm a little long in the tooth, and so this is not my first rodeo. This is the most loving church I've ever been to. So let's not take these things as black and white. But if we're coming to church for any one particular reason, we're missing the fact that the Holy Spirit is here and with us. And it's a palpable experience. And we call on Him to talk through the pastor and the teaching pastor. We call on Him to, to work through the worship team through the children's ministry, through the ushers, we have a marvelous media team, but it's all empowered by the Holy Spirit. All right? And that's what our church is hopefully all about. But life over God, even the Bible becomes a mere revelation of divine principles for life. Five practices for a happy, for a happy marriage. Some churches you'll show up to and you will, you will hear that. Five practices from the Bible for a happy marriage. Okay, in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, or maybe 10 steps to get a great job. Or DBA, by the way, is my ministry, Divine Business Appointments. We help the poor get into business for themselves overseas. We have biblical principles on how to start and maintain and grow a business based on the Bible. All right, but that's not God. And the Bible sometimes can become more important than God. Now, we are a Bible-believing church. But please don't misunderstand. While this is the living Word of God, this is not God. This is not God. Sometimes the Bible can become an idol. This is what God, one of the ways 
God reveals himself to us and we study it, we live with it, we preach it, we teach it, we introduce our, our, our youngsters to it, and we encourage each other with it. It's a powerful, powerful tool, but it's a tool. It is not God. It is not God. So I don't want to sound as if I'm blasphem blaspheming here. I just want to say that God's principles are revealed to us here, but the relationship with God comes other ways as well. This is one way the relationship of God can be nurtured, but there are other ways. And we'll explore that as we continue uh, in the message. So, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees in John 5, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Think about that. Jesus is saying, you go through these scriptures because you think this is where eternal life is. Jesus says, no. Eternal life, uh, the scriptures testify about me. And if you are unwilling to come to me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. So even if you are perfectly knowledgeable in these scriptures, as I was as a young man, without a relationship with Jesus, without following Jesus, without accepting him into my life as Lord and Savior, I had Bible knowledge. I had Bible knowledge. And armed with that Bible knowledge, I could do good things with it. I could learn good things, but I could also do some harmful things with it. So even Jesus said, the scriptures point toward me, but me, meaning Jesus, is where it ends up. That's where the rubber meets the road, is at the feet of Jesus at the cross. Life from God. This posture believes that God exists to help us through our problems and achieve what we might want or desire. Uh, people that live a life from God approach are primarily concerned with their own happiness in contrast to focusing on glorifying God, learning obedience, or serving others. When their desires aren't met, one of the things they do is simply abandon God. Simply abandon God. All right? That's what I did as a young man. And the youth in our country is abandoning the church when things don't come their way sometimes. All right? So while God is there for us, He is not the perpetrator of all of our happiness. And He is not there to solve all of our problems. He is there for us to lean on, to get counsel, to get blessings from, but he's not a Santa Claus, all right? And before we're too dismissive of people that live in a life from God, remember what the Bible says. It's, it, it reminds us that all we have is from God. So you see, in all of these cases, there's good life from God, there's good life uh, there's not so much good life above God, but there's so much good life from God, all right, that, that we can get confused sometimes. Everything draws its life from God, according to our scriptures. God is the Father of lights from whom comes every good and perfect gift. Ask and you shall receive. All of things are invitation from Jesus and from God into his kingdom. 
But when they don't happen on our timetable and according to our wishes and desires, the, the improper response is to, walk, is, is to walk away from God. We shouldn't walk away from God. We should lean on Him. We should all have some accountability partners in the church. We should all be somewhat grounded in the Scriptures so that when our wishes and desires aren't met, we might be able to draw on the comfort and the power of the Lord to understand why or to understand what our next step is. Okay. And finally, then there's, uh, there's in these four, the life for God. And this posture believes that serving God through a great mission or ministry is the way to relate to him. The Great Commission is a good example. Jesus said, you know, go out and unto all the world and evangelize. Tell them about me. Tell them about the good news. All right? Serve me. Feed my sheep. Remember when he was redeeming Peter after Peter denied him three times? He brought him on shore, cooked him breakfast. And as Peter was eating, he said, I'm reading between the lines now, but Jesus said, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. And he said it three times. He wants us in his scriptures to help the poor. He has an emphasis on widows and orphans occasionally, but he wants us to help others with the blessings that he's given us. All right. But some people are so focused on serving God and working for God that there's no time for a relationship with God. This is where I became personally convicted six months ago. As many of you know, uh, the ministry that I serve in is called Divine Business Appointments. We help the poor overseas get into business for themselves using biblical principles. It's an outreach. So we're witnessing to people who are non-believers, but it also is a comfort to those in the church for economic sustenance. All right. I am so focused on that sometimes that that's all I think about. That's all I pray about. I fundraise. I, I, I'm, I, I've been 80% of the way through a website for a year and a half now. And we've got two people full-time in the Philippines. We've been doing it now for five years. We, we go over to Nigeria. We're in Costa Rica. We had a young man catch on fire. Not literally. Uh, we had a young man fall in love with the process in Nigeria, went to his country, Chad. He's now training 200 people to start their own business. But six months ago, if you asked me, tell me about your walk with Jesus, all I would ever do is talk about this ministry. That was my idol. The ministry is my idol. My work is my idol. My work for the Lord is my idol. So I want to encourage you to step back a little bit. If you're doing a lot of service work, I want you to step back and say, yes, I'm serving Jesus, but is that the only reason that I was created? Our Lord and Savior wants a relationship, a personal, intimate, one-on-one relationship with you. Okay? And we can celebrate the community of the fellowship here every Sunday. We can go to our home groups. We can serve in the church. But the primary relationship is with the Lord. And so people 
that are so focused on, on mission and ministry that they, they think that somebody should either be on mission, like me, or if you're not on mission, you might be an obstacle to mission, or you might be aiding the mission through financial support and prayer, or you're a lazy Christian who should be on mission. There are a whole bunch of people that should not necessarily and are not gifted to be on mission, okay? But you can certainly pray for a mission. You can provide financial support. You can provide, you can roll up your sleeves and help. But that's not, that's not God. Even the prodigal son. Let's take a look at the prodigal son for a moment. That's the story of two brothers. The younger goes to the dad and says, give me my inheritance now. He goes out and squanders it, comes back and asked for forgiveness for the father because he was so much poverty and the father took him in. The younger son was living a life from God. His God was his father, all right? That's the metaphor there. And so he ran out of money, so he goes back to his God for more money or for shelter, in his case, and food, all right? The older son is living a life for God. He was the good son, right? He was the one that stayed back. He's the one that did all of the things that his father told him to do. He obeyed all of the rules. He never abandoned the father. But neither one of them wanted a relationship with God. Neither one of them wanted a relationship with God. They wanted what God could do for them. And so I think that that has, has a little bit of conviction associated with it too. If you take a look at the father's response to the angry older son, he says in Luke 15, 31, and he, the father, said to him, the older son, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. So the father figure here, the father, is saying, you've always been with me. I'm not throwing you away. I'm just celebrating the redemption of your younger brother. And the older brother never really seemed to get that or if he did the scripture doesn't tell us that he got that you almost get the impression it was like where's my stuff you know you gave you squandered it on this on my younger brother now what's what's going to happen to me so as we take a look at the summary of the four life under God sees the world as governed by the capricious will of God uh, life over God places unchanging and natural and scientific laws at the center. There may be a creator, but he sort of left us alone to do our own thing. Life from God assumes that the word ob orbits around self and God exists to serve us, to give us stuff. All right. Maybe in trade for our prayers or maybe in trade for going to church but God is there to serve us and life for God says it's all about service to God so all four of these have some good points and some negative points but let's take a look at the first love that I think that Jesus has in mind and that's I'm calling life with God life with God and this approach is based upon the view that relationship is at the core of the cosmos, relationship. God is in relationship with himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a relationship that is modeled throughout the scriptures. Therefore, to repair the broken relationship 
between us, mankind, and God, he sent his son, his only begotten son, into the world with us, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus. So God is in a triune relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all eternal, always eternal, always has been, always will be in a triune relationship. So life with God, then, is pictured like this. This is the happy guy or gal uh, in relationship with God, in communion with God. So let's take a look at the first love. Matthew 22, 37 through 39, I believe, tags right into the Revelation passage where Jesus says you lost your first love. Jesus said, the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is important. And Jesus says it's important. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But I think the message I want to get across to you is that as important as loving your neighbor is to yourself, Jesus tells us of primary importance where we get the ability to love our neighbor as ourselves is from him, is from the relationship with him, that relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, everything that is your essence, everything that's your essence, with all of your soul, your spirit, your life force, and with, all, and with all of your mind. So I believe that it encompasses the Bible. So please don't think and walk away that I am denigrating the Bible at all. I'm saying this is part of how we engage with the Lord. All right? We engage with him in community. We engage with him one-on-one -on -one in prayer. All right? But that is our primary, our first love relationship and even in our 16 year old marriage Laura and I both acknowledge as Jesus as head of our marriage and with Jesus being the head of our marriage no matter what struggles we have and if you know Laura and you know Jim we are both strong-willed people and strong-willed people can have some 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 tussles Right? Laura, we've had some tussles, haven't we? No? Okay. <laughs> but you know what? In our relationship, Jesus is the master. Jesus controls everything. The first thing my lovely wife does every morning, you know, after she takes the dog out, is meditate on the, on the Word of God. She has the whole 16 years of our marriage. I don't. I haven't. I do it sporadically. Okay? But Jesus is at the core of our marriage. Okay. So let me talk with you a little bit about spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is the process of growing more in love with God. All right? God saved us. He's there for us. So how do we grow? We're humans. God loves us and he loves us enough to send his only son and he loves us to be present with us whenever we call on him 
But how do we humans respond to that by growing more in love with God? That's the process of spiritual formation. And it encourages us to remain in Jesus. All right. In him, we move and have our being. The him is Jesus. In him, we move and have our being. How do we remain in Jesus? Okay. Spiritual formation says... At its heart, it's the formation of one's life with God. Spiritual formation as a concept is being taught now in modern sem seminaries to pastors. And so um, uh, Fuller is where our pastor has attended and, and continues to go. And in Dallas Theological Seminary and many of the major seminaries, spiritual formation, how to get closer to God. Okay, if you have a pastor that's a good pastor, a good teaching pastor, but he's not personally one on one with God, then that's going to run its course and leave us all potentially, you know, holding the bucket. All right. I'm here to attest in my walk with my pastor and your pastor. He has a one on one relationship with the Lord Jesus and maintains that in his marriage and in the running of this church. Okay, it's called spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is different than sanctification. Sanctification is the work that the Holy Spirit does on us after we become believers in the Lord Jesus. He sanctifies us. And it's a byproduct. It's, it's school. This, this earthly experience is much like a school. He's teaching us and teaching us and helping us and moving us along and taking us through the struggles that we have. And as part, it's a byproduct of having a relationship with Jesus. But sanctification is not spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is communion with God. So in, at the bottom line, spiritual formation is stronger union with Christ is what spiritual formation is about. So how do we take a look at that in relationship to our text. Okay, continuing along, we're in the, uh, the book of Revelation. Uh, he has just told the church at Ephesus, and he just told Jim that you lost your first love. So what is his remedy? He says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and do the first works. Repent and do the first works. What are the first works that Jesus is talking about? The core of my message is the first works is that salvation experience that's falling in love with the Lord Jesus and maintaining that relationship with my heart, my mind, and my soul. That's the first works. The first works isn't feeding the poor. The first works isn't helping widows and orphans. The first works isn't exclusively reading the Bible, except as it relates to having and nurturing your relationship with the, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, if you don't do this, then I'm going to come and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Repent simply means turn. Turn Jim, I want you to turn from being in love with your ministry to turn and be in love with me again. Be in love with me. I am the source of your ministry. I am the source of your life. I created you, knit you in your mother's womb. I've got you now for all eternity. 
You will be with me regardless of what takes you home. Your home is with me. Come learn and be with me. Come learn and be with me. And then he goes on in verse 6, and this can get a little confusing. But he says, but, you, but this, this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, there's not a lot written in history about the Nicolaitans, but Bible scholars speculate the, Nicolaitan, the Nicolaitans were part of the Ephesians. And if you recall, in Ephesus, there was this big temple to Diana, and a lot of pagan worship going on. The Nicolaitans broke away and they became almost like Gnostics. They, they came to like what Paul was saying, but they were still in love with the world. So they were in love with the world, couldn't let go of the world, and therefore did things that pagans did rather than follow the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus is telling the Ephesians, um, look, church at Ephesus, I know you, you know, church of Ephesus, and I'm, I'm making it personal to me. Look, Jim, I know you hate the deeds of the world. You hate the deeds of the world. You hate all the worldliness, the divisiveness going on in our world, okay? But I do too. Jesus says, I do too. So then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is my emphasis in bold. To him who overcomes... I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All right, so let's keep that in mind. He's, he's promising us eternal life. That's what the tree of life symbolizes, eternal life. So he's saying, whoever overcomes these struggles that you're, going, that you're having, these trials, whoever overcomes those, I will give to you to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So, how then do we love God? How can we, how can we get a closer personal relationship? There's, I'm, I'm just uh, uh, diagramming five here, but there's many others. Prayer with God. And the prayer with God that I'm advocating to get back to God is more of a listening prayer with God at the center with God at the center. I'm suggesting that it's okay to ask God for things. It's okay, they're called petitions. It's okay to God ask for health and care over our loved ones and nurturing and give us strength and embolden us to share your faith. But there becomes a point in time in prayer where we just simply make it about Him. Make it about Him. We have a phrase for that. It's called praising Him, praising God. So sometimes just sitting down and rather asking for, rather than just asking God for something, we say, you know, Lord, I'm just going to play back to you what I know about your attributes, your attributes. You are Creator, your Redeemer, your King of Kings, Lord of Lords. What else? Let's say them. Say them out loud. Almighty. Suffering servant. Holy. Righteous. Loving. If we sit in a group, we can all remember most of the attributes of God. 
And what I'm advocating in this prayer with God at the center is just sit there and praise him for who he is and then just listen. Just listen, making him the center. And then reflective prayer is the one where we are the most accustomed to. We are the center. We will say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay, now let's talk about me. All right. I need strength, I need power, I need glory, I need, you know, not glory, <laughs> sorry. I need, uh, I, I need health, I need, uh, I need my kids to, uh, to not be sick anymore. Uh, and then the third one is one that we modeled at the, the men's half-day retreat, okay, that we did just last Saturday. We got a group of 16 men from the church. We went off and spent a half a day. One of the techniques we introduced was EPC, Extended Personal Communion with God. Extended Personal communion, communion with God. And we all went off with our Bibles, the living Word of God, and a blank sheet of paper, took our camping chairs. I'll never forget Mike Weissman sat under a big tree, and I think uh, Kevin... Was in, the, was in the other side of the tree, so they were sharing the big shade tree. And we, uh, right? And we, uh, and, we, and we just communed with God. And for some of us, this was a really weird experience. You know, well, what are we supposed to do? Is there a program of doing this? And what's step one and what's step two? And No, there's not. Let's just sit here and let's just commune with God. Let's get used to being a little bit uncomfortable with God. All right? And let's see what God might reveal to us. And it's like a spiritual muscle. It's like building muscles in a gym. All right. The more we spend time with God, with him at the center, the more he reveals to us. Now, often what he reveals to us is in the Holy Scripture. Okay. But often he can reveal things to us that are not wrote in the, in the Holy Scripture, but are not contra to the Holy Scripture and are in conjunction with our accountability partners and our church membership. So that's why it's good to be in community with each other. So when you think God is telling you to go in a specific direction and you think it's confirmed by Scripture, get it confirmed you know, with some of your accountability partners and get a real strong resonance with God as you move forward. So this practice we, we, we introduced... Uh, at this half-day session, the men went off for one hour and did this. Uh, Laura and I go to a retreat up in the mountains where we do this for four hours at one time. All right, and that gets really freaky if you're not careful, okay? But you learn to be with God, to just be with God and love God, love Jesus, love the Holy Spirit, all right? And then finally, we've, we learned a new technique called devotional reading. Most of us read the Bible in what we call critical reading we look at we look at the passage that we're looking at we look at what came before we look at what came after we look at the historical context what is jesus or the or god telling us that is great there's nothing wrong with that but that's called critical reading devotional reading is reading scripture and listening to what god is saying through that not so much discerning what that means but what might god be telling us through that what feeling or emotion does it evoke? What word or phrase sticks out to us? And finally, uh, what invitation is God giving us as a result of this encounter with him? 
So there are many, many, many more ways to engage with God, but these are, these are some of them. All right. So how do we measure your progress? All right. Second Peter 1, 4 through 7 says, Now since you've become partakers of the divine nature, you are now members of, uh, uh, of the Jesus team. You're in the kingdom of God. You've accepted him as Lord and Savior. You uh, worship his divine nature. You're partakers of his divine nature. This is part of the sanctification process. Applying all diligence then in your faith supply moral excellence. Your morals will get better. Uh, And moral excellence comes to knowledge. Your knowledge through studying the scripture and communing with God will improve. And your knowledge, and through your knowledge then comes self-control. Notice that self-control doesn't happen first. The divine nature precedes moral excellence, that that precedes knowledge, and then comes the self-control. And then through self-control and trials and tribulations and continuing to maintain presence with God is perseverance. And then in your perseverance, then godliness, taking on some of the characteristics of God. Okay? And in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. So it's a progression. So we can actually measure our progress. And so Revelation 2, 7b then says, To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That's what Jesus is saying. To him who overcomes. To him who establishes a relationship with me. Who overcomes the trials of this world. Who maintains me first in his life. Then I will give you to eat from the tree of life in in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay? Now before we leave this, please understand. Admittance into paradise, admittance into what we Christians call heaven, does not come from reading and studying the Bible. It does not come from communing with God, it comes from the revelation of the Holy Spirit that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, died for your sins. Not our sins. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. And he showed so much love to us. How much love? This much love. That he allowed himself to be nailed, the Bible says, to a tree. We call it a cross. And he bled for us. And all we have to do to enter the eternal life in the kingdom of God is believe that. To believe, believe that he did that. That's all we have to do. It is so simple. He then grabs us and takes care of us and moves us along this path that I'm talking about. This godly path of sanctification. This godly path of growth. So if we take a look at the tree, what, what might the fruit of the tree of life be? I'm going to speculate here for a moment that Galatians 5:22 and 23, this is indeed what the fruit of the, li- of the tree of life may look like. It is the fruit of the Spirit, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, it's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, which is patience. Although for some of us, it's long-suffering. <laughs> 
kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This, this then becomes our goal as a life with God. As a life with God. So as I leave today, I just want to tell you how proud and humbled I am to be a member of this body, this family called Image Church. Uh, I'm on the junior varsity, to use a sports metaphor. We have a really deep preaching team. We've got David Taylor. We've got Gene Spindler. We've got Steve Reidinger. Okay. And for a number of reasons, those guys were a little bit... um, I had some struggles uh, this week, so the coach asked me to come in, and I just feel humbled uh, to present this message to you. Um, If you'll join me in closing prayer, we'll move on in the service. Thank you, O God, for constantly being willing to engage with us in relationship with you. We are in awe of your loving kindness and mercy. Help us to get out of our self-centeredness and draw us back to you. We praise you for the kingdom of God and for inviting us to partake in eternal life with you by accepting the gift of salvation made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. And Lord, if there's anyone today who does not yet have a relationship with you, I pray that you guide them into the everlasting love that you offer all of mankind. And Lord, I pray for the Chaddock family, Pastor Mike and his children and Beth, as they struggle through this illness. I give you praise for the recent medical surgery results of those in our congregation, for bringing them through this and on the road to healing. Father, and those who are in our congregation who struggle right now, whether it's economically, health-wise, relationship-wise, come alongside, Lord, prop them up. Be there for them, Jesus. And we pray these things in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.